The following message was given at Hope Church of Knoxville. For more information about Hope Church, please visit our website at hopeknox.com. Here he has a few moments to, to get there. Abraham Lincoln once stated this, The Lord prefers common-looking people. That is the reason He made so many of them. All too often we think that uh, it's only the, the prestigious, it's, uh, it's the important people in society or who we deem to be important in society. We think that they are the ones that God cares about or somehow or another God is, is blessing them more or doing more for them. Uh, we elevate the celebrity, if you want to think of it that way. We think that celebrities are the ones who structure and rule the world. But I think like Abraham Lincoln, there's so many common people God has made. So clearly, the common people are just as important, if not more important. There's no level of superiority among any people. I think today, whenever we see, whenever we turn to our passage today, it's a very famous passage, but we're going to see how God cares about and loves for even the least of these. We're going to see how He goes out of His way in order to love and display His love and affection to someone who is considered an outsider, someone who is considered an outcast of society. We're going to see what it looks like to love and care for those in need. If you guys want to go ahead and look with me, we're going to go through. This is a long section, so I'm going to, uh, we're not going to read it all at once and then break it down. But we're going to break it down uh, as we go. It starts off this way. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. If you guys remember last week when we were going through John 3, a big focus, Jesus goes and meets Nicodemus, or Nicodemus comes and meets Jesus, and they start having this interaction, and that, that kind of structures the plot line of, I mean, of uh, John 3. He has this conversation going back and forth with Nicodemus, and he alludes back to, I mentioned this uh, for several weeks, he constantly is alluding back to Ezekiel 36 and 37, where God promises one day... Throughout the whole Old Testament, they're longing for the day of the Messiah. They're longing for the day of the new covenant. And he says, one day I'm going to wash them clean. I'm going to give them a new heart. I'm going to give them my Holy Spirit. I'm going to write the law upon their heart. And they were longing for that day. And then John goes outside of the city and he starts baptizing. He starts baptizing and hopes to invoke all of these promises where God was going to wash these people pure. And then once again, similar to the Old Testament where they have a Canaanite conquest, we're going to make this conquest and enter in the land again and God was going to be their God and they were going to be His people. They were longing for the day that God was going to be back at the center of their lives. The center of their people. Where He would be ruling them again. And John's baptizing and then Jesus comes along and John says, the promised time is now. Messiah is here. The greater one that I spoke of has arrived. 
And then John's disciples get frustrated because Jesus starts drawing a crowd in the outskirts of the city. And they're like, is this not the one that you're talking about? He's drawing a crowd. What should we do? John's response then is, he must increase and I must decrease. John's focus is, hey, we need to make much of Christ and not make much of myself. My purpose here is to glorify Jesus, is to point others to Christ. My purpose is not to build an empire or a kingdom. It's to make much of Jesus. And now I think we have this this same theme carrying over into this chapter. This this idea of washing and being made pure and them longing for the Messiah. It starts off with Jesus' disciples baptizing. Well, this huge crowd draws near and it gets the Pharisees' attention. And what do the Pharisees do? They want to know what's going on. Who is this man who is drawing this crowd? I think it's interesting that the Pharisees are supposed to be the religious elite of the day. They're the ones who are supposed to know their Bibles. They're the ones who are supposed to know that all the Scriptures have been pointing to Christ and leading us to Jesus. They, of any people, should be the ones that accepted Christ. Yet they rejected Him. The religious elite did not accept Him They rejected Him, and they called for Him to be crucified. I think this is a good warning for us right at the beginning of this passage. How we think that if we memorize enough Scripture, or if we know it better than everyone else, if we do our quiet times more than anyone else, if we give everything that we have to the church, we can still miss the point. You can do these things and still miss the ultimate thing. That's the significance of it. Good things, when they become ultimate things, then are idols. So even reading our Bibles, we can miss the point. And I think that's why Jesus says in Mark 2 this, They may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. We can know all these things. We can do all these things that are good. We can give to the poor. We can can help the needy, yet still miss Jesus. That's the danger. If you do all these things, yet you miss Christ, you missed it all. So what happens? Jesus leaves and He's going to Samaria or to Galilee. And in that process, he comes to, this is what it says in verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. This is, knowing a little knowledge here of, of, of geography in this area, it's the most direct path from Judea to Galilee. So he's taking the direct path there. Also, I think it's interesting here, I'm going to give you a little background on this location. The uh, famous scholar D.A. Carson describes this location and the history of Samaria this way. After the Assyrians captured Samaria in 722 and 721 B.C., they deported all the Israelites of substance and settled the land with foreigners who intermarried with the surviving Israelites and adhered to some form of their ancient religion. After the exile, Jews returning to the homeland, the remains of the southern kingdom, viewed the Samaritans not only as children of political rebels, but as half-breeds whose religions were tainted by various unacceptable elements. So, even though the city is part of Jerusalem, 
My, my point in reading this to you, even though this city is part of Jerusalem, they were considered like a half-breed people. They were worshiping pagan gods. It was considered an unclean area of Jerusalem. They would intentionally avoid this area. It's not an area you'd want to go to. It's like the really rough part of town that you intentionally avoid. So much so that it was so considered contrasted to actual Jerusalem that Samaria actually built their own temple in 721. Or I'm sorry, in 400 B.C. They built their own temple to be like a rival temple to the one in Jerusalem. They saw themselves as a different people. They were considered a pagan or an unclean people. A half-breed people, if you want to think of it that way. So Jesus goes, all this build-up, Jesus goes from that town into this unreached area, into this unclean area. He goes to the untouchables. He goes to the unclean. He goes to people who most of us would intentionally avoid. And he goes, and he has a conversation. He sits down with this woman. Let's hear what happens. First of all, this gives us a little setting in verse 5. He goes near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. First thing we hear about as he arrives in this town of Samaria is that this is the area where Jacob's well was built. Why is Jacob's well significant for the story? Or why does it even matter? Is he just giving us a geographic location, a pointer? No, I think it has significance. Early on in Genesis, one of the first times we hear about a well is what happens. Hagar. Hagar and Sarah get into a scuffle and she leaves and she's going to this area and she sends her son away because she doesn't want to watch him die. And what happens? God says, go and get your son. And He provides for them well. It's a sign of hope there. The very next chapter, what happens? Abraham is getting ready to die and he sends his servants because he wants to find a, husband, I mean, a wife that is worthy for his son Isaac. And he sends his servant and at a well, Isaac meets or the servant meets Isaac's soon-to-be bride, Rebecca, And then also, similar to that story, like father, like son, if you want to think of it that way, Jacob goes and he's looking for a bride as well, and he meets Rachel at this well. It starts getting to the point in the Old Testament when you see these wells, you start thinking that wedding bells are soon to occur if a, if a well enters into the story. There's this theme of God's faithfulness and God providing at a well throughout the Old Testament. So it's interesting that Jesus comes to this well. He comes to this unclean woman. If you remember the story back to, of Jacob, he goes and serves. He tells uh, Rachel's father, he says, I'm willing to serve for her. I'll serve you seven years for her. What happens? Her father lies. And then he has to serve another seven years. He gives up 14 years of his life just so he can have this bride. And he ends up marrying Leah first instead. And then he marries Rachel cause of Rachel's father's deception. We'll see what happens in this story then. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. I find this part encouraging. Why do I find this encouraging? It tells us that Jesus was tired. 
John's already acknowledged the fact that that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He begins his Gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's acknowledged that He is God. He's acknowledged the deity of Christ. He has no problem with that. But now we're also seeing that John had a good balance of his understanding of who Christ was. He's 100% God and 100% man. So much so that Jesus gets tired and sits down at this well. He has real tiredness. He is very weary. Just like we get tired and we get weary. He is both divine and human. Jesus came into a weakened condition. He took on humanity. He took on flesh. So that His struggles were real struggles when He's out in the garden being tempted by Satan. They are real temptations. He can empathize with us in our struggles. He can empathize with us in our tiredness. I had the joy of interviewing uh, Courtney uh, Reisig. She's uh, wrote, uh, written a book called Ordinary. How Our Work in the Home Matters to God. She's a stay-at-home mom and she's writing about uh, uh, all the struggles of being a stay-at-home mom and, and the difficulties of this. And uh, she has uh, two young twins and a newborn as well. So she's got... Uh, three children at a very young age. And she was telling me about how she met with another lady from her small group at church. And they were talking about how she's at a point in her life right now with this newborn where she doesn't have time to clean her house. And she was ashamed to admit these things. She was uh, struggling. She's like, I'm just not at a point where I can clean my house right now. I've got too much on my plate. And it's one of those things that we, we view the, the, the stay-at-home mom as, you know, you have to have a, a tidy house. You have to have all your, your quiet time in place. You've got to take care of your kids. You have to have smiling and great kids. We have all these unreal expectations upon stay-at-home moms at times. We think that they have everything together and everything is perfect. And when she told this mom that she doesn't have a clean house and she's not able to do it at this moment, the other mom, who was nine months pregnant, found encouragement in that. She says, I think I'm in the same stage. I cannot keep my house clean. I've got all these kids running around. I'm pregnant, and there's no way I can do this. She went so far to say, in light of the story that she's telling me, she says she thinks it's prideful, it's arrogant to think that we can do it all, that we have it all together. It's arrogant to think that I have to be able to do all these things, that I have to have something greater, I have to be superhuman, if you want to think of it that way. How often do we think that we have to do all these tasks and we fail to admit the fact that we are weak? In our pride and our arrogance, it makes it look as if we are the hero of the story and we don't need to lean on Christ. There is beauty in the fact that we can admit admit that we are not sovereign, that we are not the strong ones, that we are vulnerable. Embracing our humility, people get to see that Christ is our hope, that Christ is our strength. We don't have it all together. There are times that we will fail. There are times that we're not strong enough. Last night I was talking with Kayla and uh, Jeremy and, and Tyler and I went to a conference on leadership. And we got back really late and then uh, went to uh, the, the celebration of, of Miss Sandy's mother, uh, Wanda. And afterwards, 
how's the point of exhaustion? And I, I know I was supposed to pick up donuts, so if there's not donuts here, this is, this is my fault. So let me go ahead and admit to this. So you can blame me. <laughs> Amen. So it was at the point where we've been driving all day. We, we did, didn't sleep well because our hotel was very hot. So I didn't sleep well with that. And we get back, and I'm like, there's no way I'm going to be able to stay up till 11 o'clock and go pick up these donuts. And there's, there's joy and hope in the fact that we are weakened vessels. We need rest. We are not strong enough. We cannot do it all. If we could, we would not need Christ. We see even Christ is wearied in His humanity. It's a reminder to us that our weaknesses, our tiredness, it's there to point us back to Christ, to help us lean on Him for our strength. We cannot do it. There are times where we're not going to know the answers. We're not going to know how to do it. And that's okay. Find encouragement in the fact that you don't have all the answers and that you're not sovereign and that you're not the superhero that you thought you were. You need Jesus just like I do. That's the hope. That's why I find encouragement in the first part of the story. Next it says it was about the sixth hour. I think it's interesting back to Jacob's journey when he went to the well. He actually comes around the same time, or actually at the same time that Jesus comes. It's around noon. So Jesus and, and these parallels to the story of Jacob and Jesus are very interesting in that. When he meets his wife Rachel at the well, Jesus meets this woman at the same time. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Remember, these are considered half-breed peoples. I think it's interesting also if you know the rest of the story. If you don't know the story, the rest of the story, the woman's caught in adultery. So let me go and give this spoiler alert. You've had 2,000 years to catch up on this story. So if you don't know the ending by now, you're a little behind the times. Similar to the time that Jason told me that Han Solo dies in the most recent Star Wars movie and completely ruined it for me. Something similar to that. But this was a little closer. Anyway... So, she's caught in adultery. Jesus comes to her and he says, Who are these women? Uh, Where's your husband? And she admits to having five husbands and the one she's with now is not that. So, Jesus comes to this woman who's very much an outcast, considered unclean. And he comes to her and he asks her for water. This woman has nothing going for her. She has nothing to be pride or proud about. There's nothing where she could say, look at these great things that I've done. The eternal Son of God comes and meets her and she has nothing at all to offer. She has nothing to bring to the table. Nothing great. She's going during the daytime, which is a time where generally women would not come there because it was so hot. So she's going because she's an outcast of society. She's going to get a drink. And Jesus asked her for some of that water. This would be the modern day equivalent of asking a homeless person for water. Or asking if you could use something from theirs. 
Jesus doesn't see any superiority over this woman. He doesn't see that he is greater. He's displaying incredible humility. He shows that all people are of value. Because all people are created in the image of God. This eliminates all, all thoughts of racial superiority. All thought, this eliminates everything of classism. Where you think that you're better than people because of the money that you have or you don't have. Jesus comes to the lowly and show and treats her just as he would anyone else. Next, I think this is interesting to note in light of, and I think the themes from the story of Nicodemus are carried over into the story. If you remember Nicodemus, what happens with him? He's this rich ruler who is over, if, if you want to think of it this way, the religious aspects of Jerusalem. He's the spiritual leader of Jerusalem. And he comes to Jesus. And I think this, the story is here to help us contrast that person, Nicodemus, with the Samaritan woman who has nothing. So Nicodemus has everything going for him. The Samaritan woman has nothing. Nicodemus is the religious elite of his day. The Samaritan woman is a woman caught in living in sin. Nicodemus is praised as he walks down the road. The Samaritan woman, people walk on the other side of the street and she's alienated. Nicodemus comes from a higher social class than this woman. She is in the lower social class. These two different people, these two different stories, why the contrast? Why are they bringing them up? It shows that they both need Jesus. The problems are completely different, but the solution is the same. So why is that important for us? Whatever is going on in your life, whatever you may be struggling with in life, whether you're in Nicodemus' situation, whether you're in the Samaritan woman's situation, the problems are different, but the cure is the same. It is Jesus who is the solution. They both needed Christ. The hope for them was Jesus. Their lives may look different, but the cure to the disease was the same. Verse 10. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God that is, that, uh, that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. The woman said to Him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Jacob's the one who founded Israel. Her father Jacob. The one they got their name from. Israel. He is the one who built this well for them. And he gave us this well to drink from it himself. As did his sons and their livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I give you will become in him a spring welling up to eternal life. In order to get this theme of water and cleansing the I'm going to read a couple of verses to build up to this, to help get an explanation of what is Jesus referring to in this water. If you guys remember back to the, the Garden of Eden, there's, there's rivers flowing to and fro from it. And I think there's also allusion to that in Revelation. That's why I think Revelation in Revelation 22, when it talks about the new Jerusalem, there's rivers just like it's as if Revelation in the new Jerusalem is a new garden. We're going to re-enter the Garden of Eden. 
Solomon, in the Song of Solomon, Solomon is talking to his bride. Historically, this, this passage has, uh, this book has been an allusion to Christ and his church. It's an allegory describing Christ and his church, and, and the bride is the church. And listen to the way he describes the bride. He says in Song of Solomon 4 a garden fountain, a well of living water is flowing streams from Laban. So from this woman, from this one is described as a church, has a garden or a river flowing from her. Streams flowing from her. Isaiah 58, talking about the, the hope of the renewal of all things and how God is going to fix these sin issues, says this in Isaiah 58, 11. And the Lord will guide you continually. And He will satisfy your desire in scorched places. And He will make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, a spring of water, whose water does not fail. Jeremiah, similarly, talks about how God is the one who provides that water. Listen to what he says in Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. So God is that one. And they've hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And then in Jeremiah 17, this is what it says, Jeremiah 17, 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Let me give you one more passage. This is, uh, this is from... Actually, no. Isaiah promises that one day sin is going to be defeated and all is going to be restored and Israel once again is going to have a water, a river flowing from her. This idea of water is that God is going to sustain you. He's going to provide for you. He's going to cleanse you. These are the hopes of the New Testament. So let's tie all of these up. The same water that's coming from the Garden of Eden is also in the New Jerusalem. God is the one who provides the water. One day, whenever the bridegroom returns and marries his bride, the church, she's going to have water flowing from her. Now Jesus meets this woman. Jesus, the greater Jacob, the greater Israel, meets this unloved woman. And He tells her, I'm going to provide you water so you'll never thirst. Again, Jesus is that living water. He is the eternal Son of God. He offers her life. This is eternal life. It's a great life. He shows He's the greater Jacob. Verse 15, The woman said to Him, Sir, give me this water so that I not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered Him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying this. I have, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. Notice she thinks that her problem is a physical problem. She thinks, I want this water because I don't want to thirst again. And Jesus, no, He changes the conversation. No, he, it's a spiritual issue. Her issue is not physical. If she drinks water again, she'll thirst again. Her issue is she needs this water so she'll never thirst again. The one that leads to eternal life. That's what she needs. She has a greater issue that she doesn't even know about. Are you drinking from this fountain? 
so that you'll never thirst again? Are you drinking from this eternal well, this greater water? What's Jesus doing? He's bringing the gospel to the center of the conversation. That's what we need to do. Shows our need for Jesus. These physical things, we think that these are our solutions to our problems. We all have problems. We think that if I get this right or if I have that, I'll be happy. Jesus says, no, you have a greater problem. You have a greater need that you don't even know about. The woman says, what you have said is true. The woman asked him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She recognized the fact that God, Jesus spoke as if He was God. He knows things about her that no one else knows. Verse 20, her father's worshipped on this mountain. So she wants to know the answer to this, recognizing that He's from God. She wants to know this answer. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will worship the Father. You worship what you know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. You see what He's doing there? He's alluding back to Ezekiel 36 and 37. The promise that one day God is going to wash us clean. One day we're going to receive His Spirit. We're going to worship Him in spirit and truth. Because we'll have the law written upon our hearts. She says, which one are we supposed to be worshiping at? In Samaria or in Jerusalem? Which one is the correct place? And He says, no, you've missed it. The focus is not the land. The focus is the fact that we're going to receive the Holy Spirit and that we're going to one day worship Him throughout all the earth. Abraham was promised the nations and we're going to see that fulfilled in Christ. The hour is coming. And I think the hour he's referring to, he'll later say, my hour has come, which is the cross. Let's read this last part together. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I, speak, I who speak to you am He. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left the water jar and went away into a town and said to, said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. The story ends with a spiritually unattractive lady who had nothing to offer her. If you guys remember the story back with Rachel and Leah, Rachel was the beautiful one, the attractive one, and that's who Jacob wanted to marry. But he ended up marrying Leah, the unattractive one, because of Laban's deception. Leah had nothing to go for her. She ended up being despised by Jacob. She was unattractive. Jesus similarly meets a woman at the well who is spiritually unattractive. Jacob gives up 14 years of his life to to capture for himself a bride who is spiritually attractive. Jesus lays down his life for this woman who is spiritually unattractive. Jesus goes above and beyond and gives up his life to capture himself a bride. 
Are you drinking from the fountain of Christ? He offers us all this living water. All who come to Him get this drink. I'm going to end with this quote from a famous hymn. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart. Turn my heart to sing Your grace. Streams of mercy. That's what we all need. Never ceasing. Calls for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it. Mount of thy redeeming love. Is that you today? Are you drinking from the fountain of Christ? If so, you'll never thirst again. Your issue is not tiredness or weariness. You have a greater issue. You need the water so you'll never thirst again. Turn from your sin. Run to Christ. He's there waiting upon you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this. Thank You for this time together to reflect upon the woman at the well who we are all more like than we want to admit. Help us realize we are in need of redemption just as she is in need of redemption. And help us, now that we've experienced Your grace and Your love, to turn away from our sins and go about the city telling them of all the things that you've done in our life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.